Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Lord God, we thank you again for um, this Lord's Day. We would ask and pray again that you've been preparing our hearts and minds for you. Uh, that we are desiring to, to worship you in spirit and in truth, uh, that again, it's through Christ, his perfect saving work on our behalf, uh, that we can call you Father, uh, to know, Lord, we have this privilege of not only a prayer, but a praise. And we just ask and pray again, Lord, that this worship uh, has already begun and that you have uh, prepared our hearts and minds that as we uh, study Pilgrim's Progress, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher that you would draw us to you and that you would help us again to, to understand uh, the great blessings we have in Christ and that it would uh, help secure our faith and strengthen us and, uh, and cause us to worship you more and more. So again, we just thank you for this time together and to, to be get together as your people. And we just want to ask and pray for your blessing upon all these things. And we thank you again for, for Jesus. And it's his name we pray. Amen. Well, welcome back for most of you who are here. Uh, the outlines for this section, uh, we had a big old stack last, last week, and hopefully those of you who uh, grabbed the paper copies, you still have that. And, if, and to remind you to make sure you do that because the, I kill a lot of trees. Um, I like to try to be a little bit conservative with the environment. And so also too, uh, online, there's, there's an uh, electronic copy. You can access, access it that way as well. Well, the question went out is, where are we? That is a great question. And let's talk about where Pilgrim is at. Uh, he has finally made it through the gates. We talked about that, the straight gate. Um, he is on the straight and narrow path, and hopefully so are we, this morning in Jesus. We talked about what that, the, the importance of being on the, the path, right? And then he, uh, Goodwill sent him to see uh, the interpreter. And uh, the, the interpreter represents uh, whom? Who is, who's the interpreter? The Holy Spirit. Thank you very much. Speak up. Be bold about that. That's right. Um, and again, this is, this is, everything's important. I would always argue everything's important. And again, is that uh, the Holy Spirit leads him. There's this house, and the Holy Spirit has this candle. And there's these rooms that Christian, he escorts Christian to. And... Um, and so the Holy Spirit's revealing to Christian, as a new Christian, uh, certain truths, certain things that are vital, that are important, uh, wonderful things, excellent things uh, that he needs to know as he's on this pilgrimage. Um, and by the way, I was just, if you just kind of, um, as you meditate and think about all these different things, um, I, I love the idea of the Holy Spirit being the interpreter. Right? Again, if you think about 1 Corinthians chapter you know, 1 and 2, where it talks again about you know, uh, that by the Holy Spirit, we understand spiritual things, right? He's our teacher, right? You think of 1 John, the anointing, you know, we have because of Christ, through the Holy Spirit, uh, we know. Um, also, too, of course, um, uh, in Romans chapter 8, talks about the mind set upon the Spirit is life and peace. The Holy Spirit is a witness within us saying uh, that we, uh, we've been adopted into the, uh, into the family of God through Christ, right? We cry out, Abba, Father, right? So the role of the Holy Spirit, I want to emphasize over and over again because the scriptures emphasize the, the importance the, uh, uh, and the, the, what the Holy Spirit does and why that's, of course, should be precious to us as well. 
All right, so the first room, the Holy Spirit escorts uh, Pilgrim to. Uh, what was the, the first uh, scene there? Maybe call on you. I will call on you. There's a painting. There's a painting. Very good. All right. So, and the painting is of, of what? What's the painting of? Describe it real for me. And remember, a painting of a, a, a grave man, a serious man, right? The pastor, right? Uh, this, and, and it was interesting is that I had, um, and, you know, obviously this is the Puritan view of, the, of a pastor and uh, the high qualifications. You want to have a man of God in the pulpit who is, again, focused upon the gospel, Right, and and there's all these descriptions about this, and and uh, I had a little comment from someone saying, well, the Puritans are so precise, they're so serious about you know um, what the qualifications are, and it seems a little uh, uh, too much, right? And my response to that is, yet yeah, perhaps, you know, again, you do want uh, uh, to have a biblical view of of the preacher, but at the same time, in our day and age, we're on the other extreme, right? Again, our, typically the man in the pulpit is the entertainer, is the celebrity, it's the someone who wears the tight jeans, it's the person who looks good, right? But again, whether they're spiritually qualified or truly a man of God is in question. So uh, that first scene is, is pretty important. Um, what was the next room? The next room. The dirty room, the dusty room, remember that? Okay, remember that? The whole idea is that the, 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 the broom, the dusting is the law, right? And he has a scene where again, uh, Pilgrim is choking on the dust and the, the, the interpreter calls for a woman to throw water on the floor, right? And that's the gospel, right? And so therefore the heart of the man, the room represents the heart of man, it can be cleansed or washed by the preaching of the word of God. Um, then we had the, the, the room with the two children, right? We had two childs, two children's, right? Two, both begin with a P word, right? Come on, wake up here. Patient and passion. Patient and passion, all right? Okay, so uh, passion, let's talk about passion, all right? Because that seems a little odd, right? It doesn't quite fit, maybe, or does it? Remember, remember the, the whole idea is that the governor of the two children promises them treasure. Promises them treasure, right? And you have the little spoiled crud kid, pa uh, passion, right? He wants it now, right? We talk about Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, Veruca, salt, right? I want it now, right? And that represents what? Passion. What's that? Passion. It does represent passion, yes, okay. But it represents the world, right? We talk again about those who are in the world. Their treasure is of the world, right? They want it all now. They're going to go for the gusto now. They're satisfied with whatever crumbs they can collect in this life. And again, we emphasized last time that everything in this life is temporary. It's fleeting. It's a vapor. It's a mist, right? And their treasure, and Jesus talks about this, do not seek the treasures of earth, but the treasures in heaven. And so patience which again, for believers, we're waiting, right? We're waiting again uh, and desiring those things which are better, which Christ has for us in heaven. Now we're on, we move on to the third room, the next room, and this is on page 11 of my outline. And this is the room with the, the unquenchable fireplace. That should sound interesting. So you think of a room that has a fireplace, okay? So, and it says here on page 11, uh, that I saw in my dream that the interpreter took Christian by the hand and led him to a place where there was a fire burning against a wall, 
and one standing by it, always casting much water upon it to quench it. Yet the fire did burn higher and hot, higher and hotter. Excuse me. All right. So picture your mind again. There's a fireplace, and this, there's a fire burning in the fireplace, and there's some individual who's throwing water on that fire. All right. And even though he's doing that, instead of the fire going out, the fire is actually getting hotter. All right. So this is where uh, Bunyan's going to give us a little bit of an insight here about uh, the role of Satan. Because Satan is the one who's trying to throw poor water on the fire, right? Remember, this is, this is a, a symbol. It's an allegory. And they have a quote here from uh, uh, Grace Abounding where, where Bunyan says this. Then hath the tempter came upon me also with such discouragements as these. Quote, Satan's basically saying to Bunyan, you are very hot for mercy, but I will cool you. This frame will not, will not last always. Many have been as hot as, as you for a time, but I have quenched their zeal. And with this, such and such who were fallen off would be set before mine eyes. Then I would be afraid that I should, I should too uh, do so too, excuse me. But thought I, I am glad this comes to my mind. Well, I will watch and take care uh, that I can. Well, though you do, said Satan, I shall be too hard for you. I will cool you insensibly by degrees, by little and little. What care I, saith he, though I be seven years in chilling thy heart, if I can do it at last? Continual rocking will lull a crying child asleep. I will ply it close, but I will have my end accomplished. Though you be burning hot at present, I can pull you from this fire. I shall have you cold before it be too long. All right? And so, again, I love the imagery here. Again, it's this idea is that... Um, you know, about fire, this idea about passion, this idea about, um, you know, uh, you think this um, being hot for Jesus, all right? Uh, you think of the, the, the whole thing in Revelation says, you know, don't be lukewarm, but be hot or cold, remember that? And in this case here, Satan is basically doing this thing for um, basically telling Bunyan, yeah, you're passionate, you're zealous, you're, uh, you're on fire for Christ now, but just wait, give me time, give me time, all right? Um, and I just thought about this, too, because it ties a little bit into the screw tape, screw tape Letters. Have you ever read the Screw Tape Letters? It's another great book about spiritual warfare. And we are talking about a real devil, by the way, okay? And it's real spiritual warfare. And there's a great uh, passage in here where uh, the main uh, character um, uh, is basically, uh, Screw Tape is writing to Wormwood, and he says this about uh, one uh, individual that this, they're trying to tempt. You will say that these sins are very, these, these, they are very small sins and doubtless, like young, all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. And I always thought about that's really, this kind of ties into this, this same imagery here again is Satan's basically saying, yeah, I'm going to keep throwing water on that fire and I got time. You know, you may be zealous for God now, but again, little by little by little, I'll wear you down. Now, but there's a, there's a, the good news here is on page 12, you move on here. Um, 
this is going to be a subpoint B here. As Christian ponders the scene before him, he asks, what does this mean? So remember, interpret, uh, the interpreter is going to interpret the, what the imagery is here. The interpreter explains that the fire is the work of grace accomplished in the heart by the Holy Spirit. Point C, the one who casts water on the fire is the devil who would like nothing better than to see the heart grow cold and still. Seeing his heart at work in this endeavor, constantly in his efforts, Scripture speaks of him as walking about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, 1 Peter 5, 8. As Christian wanders at the sight of the flame's perseverance in the face of such opposition, the interpreter has him come around to see the backside of the wall. So they, again, in the usual scene here, there's a fireplace here, but you can go around. So basically, uh, Christian can now see what's going on behind the fireplace. And when he sees what's going on behind the fireplace, is that uh, a man with a vessel continually feeds the fire with oil. The water may pour endlessly to douse and discourage it, so also the oil continually revives it and sustains it that it will never go out. And of course, again, Jesus and the Holy Spirit, they're pouring oil on our fire, on our faith, okay? So no matter how much water Satan tries to douse it, the fire burns ever hotter and doesn't go out. And that's the next point here, on, uh, on, under, on page 12 here, for a Puritan such as Bunyan, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints was a cardinal truth involving both responsible cultivated action and sovereign preservation. For while the believer is exhorted, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, yet he is also comforted by the assurance that it's God who's at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, uh, Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. It is this sovereign perspective of persevering grace does now explain. Now, there's, there's, by application, you got three points. Number one, Satan is ceaseless in his attack upon the believer. All right, and this is something we need to be reminded of. Uh, again, we haven't got to the Valley of Humiliation yet, where Apollyon shows up, where Satan shows up, and there's a direct attack upon uh, the pilgrim, upon Christian. But over and over and over and over again, we're reminded that we're at war. We're at war. We're at war. We're at war. And a lot of times, I think, unfortunately, in the culture, uh, we think there's a truce. Right? That there's somehow this, this no man's land, right? That Satan's on one side, we're on this side, and basically we can basically, we don't have to worry about warring against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And that would be very dangerous to do. That's why books like the Screw Tape Letters and Pilgrim's Progress and other books uh, remind us, and scripture, of course, remind us is that we're put on the full armor of God, we're to stand firm in the faith, and we are to be fighting every single day against those, those enemies that would seek to destroy us. You have also on page 13, uh, the second point here, the perseverance of the saints is all of grace. And I love this line here. It says, without the oil of God's grace continually applied to the heart, we would quickly grow cold and dark. While we must be diligent to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, we must remember that Christ and we must remember Christ and set our hope in God who works in us both to will and to work to his good pleasure. The strength to persevere is not in us, not in our determination, not in our creativity, not in our optimism. We press on only by the grace of God. And again, I just I love that over and over again because it's by God's doing. First uh, Corinthians, it talks of that. It's by God's doing we are in Christ. And Christ is our wisdom. He's our righteousness. He's our sanctification. He's, our, he's everything that we need, right? And we depend upon, utterly, upon the power and the presence and the grace of God to preserve our faith. Yes? Right? Because a lot of times we get this thing, it all depends, depends upon me, and we forget is that Jesus is holding on to us. 
He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. Right, that song. With there's a reason why we love that song. Reason why I love that song. And finally, we must remember to look behind the wall. The times when it's difficult to understand God's work in us and the rest of His grace are often the times when we face the fiercest temptation and oppression. Those seasons of spiritual refreshment and growth, our faith may be strong, yet when these are past and times of difficulty arise, we can too easily find ourselves weak and unbelieving. So a lot of times, again, when it feels like Satan's trying to douse out the fire and bringing temptations and struggles and oppression and whatever else it may be to try to kill our faith, we need to remember again, the Lord is pouring that oil constantly. The Lord's going to preserve our faith. He's going to make sure, again, that we stand as we turn to him and trust him. All right, any questions on the, the fireplace? I love the fireplace. It's great. Okay. Moving on, let's talk about fighting. Some more fighting here. We have a scene of pressing into the kingdom of God. The next room they go to, and it says here, I saw also that the interpreter took him by the hand and led him to a pleasant place where there was builded a stately palace, beautiful to behold, at the sight of which Christian was greatly delighted. He saw also on the top thereof certain persons walking who were clothed all in gold. So they go outside, and there's a beautiful palace, and you have these individuals who are walking it's a, uh, on top who are dressed in gold. All right, so you think heaven, right? Um, and then, so you go to the, on my outline, page 13 there, so we go to point B. The door of the palace signifies the true gospel of Christ. Bunyan used the symbol of a door, we've already talked about that before, with the, uh, with the gate, the, the wicked gate and so on. Then point C, it says, Christian sees a great company of men who desire to go in but are afraid. This company represents the multitudes who want eternal life, its blessings and its joys, but are unwilling to endure the suffering, persecution, and difficulties come by obtaining it. Going to point D, in the doorway of the palace stands a garrison of fierce, unholy combatants in armor who are determined to restrain anyone who attempts to gain entrance. So again, picture this in your mind, is that there's this palace, right? And it's great, it's beautiful and so on, and you want to go there, you want to get in, right? Unfortunately, there's these men who are in front of it, basically who are blocking the way, right? And they're tough looking, they're terrible looking, they're basically, they're intimidating and so on. And you have people who are looking on who are so intimidated by that, say, well, we, we don't want to try. Right? We don't want to, it's, it's too much. And then if you look at the very bottom of my outline, it says, the sight of such opposition leaves Christian amazed. None in the crowd, on page 14, are willing to face the opposition and gain the great reward of eternal life until a valiant man comes forward and boldly tells them at the table, set down my name, sir. So I love this again, this scene, is there's a guy at a table who's got a ledger, right? And nobody wants to come up and basically say, put my name down, I'm going in. Send me in, coach, I'm ready to play. Right? And so here comes this one guy. He comes in, he says, okay, I put my name down. And then what he does, he puts a helmet on, right? Think of, again, the armor of God, right? The helmet of salvation. And he has a sword, sword. I'm right-handed. Sword. He's got the hand sword, right? And, um, and he goes on the attack. I mean, literally, this guy goes for it. He, led, he goes into this great um, battle, essentially. And if you go back on my outline here, it's on point F. The conflict is fierce and protracted involving much cut and thrust. The wounded valiant man in giving more injury than receives eventually gains entrance. So if you can picture in your mind again, every action movie that you've seen where you've got one guy who's fighting through a crowd of uh, attackers, whatever, and he gets punched, he gets hurt, he gets cut, there's, there's, there's some wounds, okay? But basically he perseveres. And this is the idea of persevering, right? Um, and it's interesting, too, is that this is the one, uh, so this, the, 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 the victor, the valiant man, Mr. Valiant for life, he makes it through, he gets to the door, he gets in, and he basically receives his reward. Um, 
And I thought it was interesting is that number one, pilgrims, this is the one room that pilgrim basically says, I, I get it. All right, you don't have to interpret this for me. You don't have to explain this to me. I think I know what this means. All right? But I, I, I'm a little bit baffled by that because I wonder if we understand what it means. Right? Okay, me, I'm going to just elaborate here because maybe I'm not, you're not following me here, okay? Um, we don't like to, we already talked about the, uh, the, the armor of God and the Christian life of being a, one of warfare, right? So number one, we struggle with that. Yes? Yes, we do. Okay. Also, this idea about fighting, okay, this idea of perseverance, this idea of exertion, spiritual exertion, because, again, there's resistance constantly, right? There's con we have our flesh. We live in a fallen world. We have a satanic opposition. There's lots of other things happening again. And I think there's, a, in a sense, there's almost like a passivity a lot of times where it's like let go and let God. You know, pretty much, again, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a, uh, I'm a Christian, I'm saved, uh, I'm born again, um, I've got my fire insurance, I've got my passport to heaven, and so therefore I can just kind of sit back and just basically kind of go through life and so on and, you know, and have my cake and eat it too, um, and then somehow I'll eventually, I'll die and I'll go to heaven, right? And this idea with the, with the, the value of manning, this, this idea is that you have to fight for it. Now, again, are you fighting with God's weapons? Yes. Are you fighting through the Holy Spirit? Yes. Has Christ already won the battle? Yes, he has, all right? But there is, um, there's that part of work out your salvation with fear and trembling that we still need to do, right? And so this idea, again, is that, and, and, and that's not the only kind of imagery that's used in the Bible, for example. It uh, uses the idea of the athlete, right? The Apostle Paul loves the idea of the athlete, Right? Because the athlete has to train, the athlete has to be self-disciplined, the athlete has to exert himself in order to win the prize, right? The farmer, uses the farmer a lot of times too, right? The farmer has to work hard, the farmer has to be diligent uh, in order for him to gain the crops and so on. So this is not working, this is not um, earning salvation. Please don't misunderstand me, that's not what I'm saying. But the point is, is again, is that there, um, we have to live the life. Okay, we have to walk in obedience. We have to, uh, again, put effort into it again because, again, there'll be, there'll be things that are trying to wear us down, things that are trying to divert us from Christ, things that are getting that, that uh, water trying to douse our faith, and there'll be basically people saying, uh, trying to um, uh, destroy us. And we have to stand firm in the faith, and we also have to, again, press forward. And so the fighting imagery there, I, I, I've, you know, Christian basically says, oh, I get it. But I also wonder, too, if we, you know, we, we feel uncomfortable with that. We don't really know what to do with that. So I'll let you kind of mull on that for a little bit, and that's not controversial at all. Um, now let's bring you to another one that's really not controversial. Let's talk about the man in the iron cage, all right? Now I'm going to uh, read the, 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 on page 15 the top here. Then I'm going to go back and, and sing you a song. Um, on page 15... Um, this is the one room where there's no light. Okay, this is the one, remember, as an interpreter takes a Christian into every single room, they got the candle, they have the light, it's illuminated, right? But this is the room, one room that's dark. And so he said, he took him by the hand again and led him to a very dark room where there sat a man in an iron cage. Now the man, to look on, seemed very sad. He sat with his eyes looking down to the ground, his hands folded together, and he sighed as if he would break his heart. Then said Christian, what means this? At which the interpreter bid him talk with the man. Then Christian said to the man, what art thou? The man answered, I am what I was not once. 
So this is again a very um, controversial um, image and symbol and so on. Um, I've got it. There's a there's a band, the Neil Morse band I, I mentioned before. He has a song called "The Man in the Iron Cage," and and his there's an album from that which is all Pilgrim's Progress. And I, I just want to read a couple of the lyrics here just to give you an idea about sometimes what the what's going on here. And the lyrics on, on page 14 go a little bit in 15, where the the singer goes, "I'm the man in the iron cage of fear. I've been locked in this place for a thousand years. I used to believe like you." I used to be someone who showed to others the way, but now I'm lost. No one ever made me who I am. I burned my bridges, sold my house, my car, my friends. I used to believe like you. I used to be someone who showed the way the, to others the way, but now I'm lost. I took down every, I took, I'm sorry, I took every guardrail down. I never thought I'd be found out, but my secret sin surely had a cost. Surely you can find your way back home. Surely you can turn to God alone. You're, you are never too far gone. His mercies new each day. You can still sing freedom's song. You are not too far gone. You never. You are never too far gone to ever turn again. On the man in the the cage of death, shared started with a little slip. Now it's such a mess. I used to believe like you. I used to have dreams like you do. But now I'm a prisoner of my rage. When you, think, when you think you're sure to stand, when you're running the race I ran, remember the man in the iron cage. And this, um, again, is open to interpretation a little bit, right? actually a lot, okay? And it's, and it's controversial because in one sense, it's dealing with, with apostasy, okay, with apostasy. Okay, the idea of, and if you don't know what the word apostasy is, it's interesting is that when I've taught uh, in my classes and I use the word apostate or apostasy, I get these blank looks. Okay, I don't know, they don't know what that means, right? And the idea is falling away from the faith. Falling away from the faith. And it's interesting, again, is that um, when you think about this, because a lot of times people say, well, you know, what's the unforgivable sin? And the, in this case here, we're going to see here, is this, this man is in a place that where he never thought he would be. All right? This man is in a place where he never thought he would be. And it's interesting where, when you're, you're looking at the imagery, oh, how did he get to this place? And on page 15, he talks about this, because Christian's going to start talking with him. He's going to try, try to understand what's going on here. And so on, on page 15, on A there, it says, The man in the cage appears sad with downcast eyes and folded hands. He sighs as if his heart is breaking, and so on. Point B. The iron cage represents the despair of one who has sinned to the point of losing hope of God's forgiveness and salvation. The cage is made of iron to show how strong the bonds of despair can be upon the soul. Bunyan describes a room containing the, the cage as very dark. The other rooms of the house were lit by a candle which represents the illumination of the spirit, which enables us to understand and apply the truths of scripture. In this room, however, there is an ominous darkness suggesting a lack of illumination and spiritual understanding and has caused this man's drift towards apostasy. Right. Now, before the part of the, the controversy and speculation is that is this person apostate who has fallen away, who is never a Christian, and so therefore he's lost, or is this a Christian who has fallen into sin and his despair and his shame and his guilt is so great that he's going through this valley of the shadow of death and he feels God's deserted him and there's no hope for him? Are you following me on, on this? Okay, and um, I'm going to cheat here. I'm going to say it can be. Uh, I'll give you my side here in a little bit. But one thing that made me think about this a lot is that um, 
We talked last week about um, you know ending up walking as a pilgrim. Sometimes you find yourself walking alone, but it didn't start out that way. That maybe you had family members, maybe you had uh, you were part of a youth group, maybe you were part of a um, that you, uh, a number of individuals were with you, and they started the journey, and, and they, they went through the same experiences. But as time passed, they fell away. They fell away. They fell away. And I found that a lot of times, for example, as being a teacher at a Christian school, this is my 16th year at this particular school. Um, and one of the interesting experiences I've had is I've, you know, um, I've seen a lot of times students who go to a Christian school for a long time. And they could be, and it could not just be a long time, but I'll see them, you know, one year, two year, three year, four year, and they're going to chapel, they're going through Bible classes, they're getting good grades, they're making professions of faith, uh, they're going on mission trips. They're doing everything that everybody else is doing. Follow me? And they're all saying they're Christians. Right? They're all saying they're Christians, right? And they're doing, you know, they're going to chapel and they're doing the fist pumps for Jesus, you know, and they're all, you know, you know how youth are, you know, they got all that energy, you know, for Jesus, you know, they're hot for Jesus, okay? Um, and um, there's that, and I, and I appreciate that, okay? Make sure I don't want to squelch that, okay? I'm not, okay? Is that that's good. They have that, that, that enthusiasm for Christ. But what happens, though, is that they graduate. They leave. And a lot of times what happens is I'll, I'll, I, I put trackers on them, and I try to follow them. Right, Carolyn? Okay, I'll say. Um, because I want to know. I want to know what happened to them. I'm always curious. A lot of times the Lord brings them to, to mind. I want to pray for them. And I always wondered, okay, did they stay the faith? Are they still on the path? Are they still following after Christ as they go to college, as they go wherever, God, wherever they're, they're, they're at? Um, are they still professing that faith? Are they still walking with Christ? And truth of the matter is that usually not. Usually about, from my, well, I, from what I can understand is that at least half of them fall away. At least half, sometimes even more, all right? And so one of the things I will talk about my classes and for chapels and so on, I want to talk about apostasy. Because this whole idea about taking your faith for granted, um, this idea that um, your, um, you know, if you have this assumption, yeah, I'm saved, once saved, always saved, and, uh, and I'm good, and now I can basically start being careless with my faith. Because the big thing you're going to see with the man of the Iron Kate, well, let's just read on more here, and you'll see how did he get to this place. We jump on over to the next page on page 16. On point D, the man in the iron cage had tasted God's good word and was once a flourishing professor on his way to the celestial city. But this man so flirted with sin and ignored the warnings and commands of scripture that he now believes that God will no longer have him. The man explains that he laid the reins upon the, the, the neck of my lust. Instead of pulling back and keeping his passions under control, he allowed himself to run wild in whatever direction his lust drew him. Okay, and I have a quote here from John Owen. We'll talk about it here in a second. But you get the idea here is that um, there's, a, there's a carelessness here. You know, this whole idea, there's an old saying, um, you know, the price of freedom is eternal diligence. The price of freedom is eternal diligence. And a lot of times what will happen is that sometimes Christians... Um, will get careless and they'll, they'll, they'll start indulging in sins and eventually it leads them to a place they never thought they'd be. Right? Now again, if that person's saved, God will bring them back. God will bring repentance. God will, will discipline them usually. All right? But again, they'll eventually repent and return back to the Lord. But unfortunately, a lot of times you have people who are 
uh, who are professing to be Christians, and they begin to live a lifestyle where it reveals that they were not, their heart has not been changed. This thing's really bugging me. I'm sorry. I don't know if it's me or it. Um, so anyway, sorry. But you see the point here is, is that how did the man get in the cage? Is because he says, again, I allowed my sins. Um, I didn't have any self-control. I indulged in my sins. I uh, didn't think there'd be any consequences, and I didn't think I'd get caught. And now I'm in this, this prison of my own making, so to speak. And now the, the other question goes down to this very bottom here. It's not clear in the story if the man's opinion of himself is accurate. If the man is one of God's elect, God will certainly in time grant him repentance and again restore him to his joy. If the man, however, is indeed an imposter who has pretended to follow Christ, while at the same time entertaining his sins and lusts, he will certainly perish in his misery and apostasy. Christian is left to wonder if the man will ever be released from the cage. And so this is a really, really sobering image. It's a very, very sobering scene. And I do have like the quote there at the very bottom, page 16, from John Owen. Well, Owen in his work, The Mortification of Sin, says, Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Always be at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work, a mortification. And, then he, and this is a very famous little quote here. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And so, again, this man who's in the iron cage was not doing that. He was not killing his sin. He was careless with his sin. It got out of control, and basically he found himself imprisoned and trapped by it. Now, on page 17, the, uh, you have one commentator who basically believes that the man in the iron cage is not beyond the reach of God's mercy. Okay, some commentators would say, again, this man's lost. Um, you can lose your salvation, things like that. I'm not going to get into that right now. But I do like the idea for those who, again, are in... Um, despair or those who really think that they've, they've, they've gone too far and they've sinned too greatly and God cannot forgive them and, they, and there's some uh, interesting optimistic uh, points here on uh, page 17 it says uh, the man shows a concern for the condition of his soul and grief that he has treated Christ and his work with such disdain okay this guy is miserable and that's a good sign okay it's not when you're miserable it's a bad sign when you don't care that's bad Right? Number two, he finds no pleasure in his former sins. Now all of them bite and gnaw at him as a burning worm. I don't know what a burning worm is, but it sounds bad. <laughs> uh, point three, he is not yet totally lost. He has not yet been cast into the door of hell. He still lives and breathes and in fact resides in the house of the interpreter. And again, while you're still alive, there's hope. When you're dead, game's over. And then finally, point four, finally he sees, he, said he has his eyes on eternity. He is no longer enamored with temporal lusts, pleasures, and profits. His soul has been awakened to the consequences of his sin, and he cries out in lament. And those, again, those are good things. Again, and again, uh, if the story was continued on, your hope is, again, if someone who's in that condition, and maybe you have been in that condition, I know I have been in that condition, And again, this idea of God and his mercy and his grace brings you back. But again, uh, that's a pretty hard and miserable place to be, but you, uh, and, you're, and you can learn from that. Um, let's move on to point H, and we'll finish up with a, well, we'll move on to the next one here. Uh, H, we must remember this lesson as well as our own bouts with, with despair. Satan would like nothing more for God's people to be so trifled with sin and rebellion that we become ensnared by it and convinced we will never find relief and freedom. The devil would have us mired in hopelessness, despairing ever of obtaining God's mercy and forgiveness. 
And so we must take refuge in the gospel, turning from sin and running to Christ. We must learn the lesson from the man in the cage to watch, be sober-minded, and pray. We must guard our hearts from the unholy pursuits of lust, pleasure, and profits that cause his misery. We must delight ourselves in God and his word and hold fast the key of promise that would always, can always set us free from despair. And that's another uh, part of the story. That key is the promise of grace and mercy and forgiveness found only in the saving work of Jesus Christ. So there's a lot in this particular image um, that we can pull from. Any, any thoughts, any questions on this at all? Without being controversial? <laughs> you be quiet back there. All right, so let's talk about a frightening dream. This is another one that's a little bit um, unsettling. In the final lesson, Christian receives at the house of interpreter, he is told of, a cer the, of the certainty of the coming day of judgment and the great necessity of being prepared to face it. Christian sees a man rising out of bed who had just had a fearful dream. This man awakes in his chamber, shaking and trembling. The day of judgment has come, and the man was, was found still in his sins. So this is pretty easy to picture. Again, someone who has, has had a dream, all right? And they wake up, and they are totally freaked out, right? Because they've been left behind, right? Not the book. Okay, yes. Um, but you, again, it, it raises an interesting point, okay? Because the, the idea over and over again is Jesus talks about is that the day of judgment, that his second coming can come at any time, like a thief in the night, right? I remember in the 70s with the Jesus movement, this is like a huge emphasis, all right? Uh, and the, uh, and the, 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 the feeling and the impression was is that Jesus was coming back at any time, that we actually believed that, all right? And so the point here is that um, that feeling and those Bible studies and that emphasis and so on drove us to the word. In other words, you know, are we ready? Are we ready that if Christ comes back right now, would we be rejoicing and would we be uh, you know, uh, welcoming that or would we be ashamed? And this man here who's, in the, who's uh, going through this terrible dream, this experience basically, he says, I've been left behind. I'm not, I haven't been, uh, I'm not part of God's people. I've been take, uh, I'm not welcoming this. In fact, I'm in the opposite now. I'm in, uh, under God's judgment. And so it's a pretty grim and pretty graphic um, description. Again, and basically it's taken from the book of Revelation, uh, which we've been talking about. And if you look at the, on page 18, the very bottom there, the distress of the unprepared man. So the man awakes, only, but only to the greater realization of his lack of readiness for eternity. The warning he received, like many an earthly reminder of our mortality, is, uh, is yet a gracious act of divine providence. And so, again, the question for you and for me always is, are we ready for Jesus to return right now? Right now. It could be at any time. Or the other part, of course, is that we could die at any moment and be into his presence and, and appear before him. And are we ready for that? And of course, human nature being what it is, we think, well, that's far into the future. That's something I don't have to worry about right now. Um, I, I don't, I can be, I can, I can wait. And then the, the story and the lesson from the man of the frightening dream, again, is that you have no idea when it's going to happen. On uh, page 19, the clear warning that concludes Christian's instructions at the house of the interpreter, a warning that the interpreters uh, felt was important enough to restrain Christian from proceeding on the journey until he heard it, 
has sadly vanished in many pulpits in our day. People are eager to hear messages that address immediate concerns, how to raise children, how to solve social ills, how to succeed in business and relationships, but to confront them with the certainty of death and then afterward the judgment, this is much too uncomfortable. Though the world hates to hear it, those who, who would find true peace and interest into heaven must hear, our eternal souls are at stake. All right, so we have finally, Christian has finally left the house of the interpreter. He has received all these lessons, all these uh, um, um, things that he needs to remember as he goes along his journey, and he finally reaches the hill of deliverance. Yay, yay. So we've come to the gate, we've reached the hill. Now, Christian arrives at the, and so you can think of the hill of deliverance, it's right on the nose, okay, there, uh, that there's a hill, all right, and there's a cross on the top of the hill, right, and then underneath it, at the base of it, there is the tomb, right? So Christian arrives at the cross, and to his amazement, at the side of the cross, his burden rolls, tumbles off his back, and falls into the mouth of the sepulcher. The cross and the sepulcher denote the work of Jesus Christ and his crucifixion and resurrection. Here at the cross, the pilgrim finds his relief, and we talked about this before again, um, about the gate controversy and, uh, you know, again, uh, what the, the bird rolling off, um, what it would mean. But without a doubt, it is a completion, it's an assurance of salvation that Pilgrim and Bunyan enjoy. As Christian marveled in the joy and peace he had found in contemplating the death and resurrection of Christ, three shining ones came to him. The three shining ones represent the, uh, the triune God in the heart of a sinner who's saved by grace. Okay, so again, you picture this in mind here. It's very dramatic. Every, all these videos we been, haven't been able to see yet, but Christian reaches that, and the, bur the burden, this big old burden, right, it's all on there, and it starts, it's, you know, it starts falling off. Right? It's really dramatic. You know, kind of, and it, then it rolls down the hill. Doo -doo 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 -doo. Okay, and then it falls right into the, into the tomb, right? And then while Christian is amazed and rejoicing uh, appropriately, three shining ones appear to him, right? And again, it's symbolic of the Trinity, uh, but they basically all mean something. Um, the first declared that Christian is justified in the sight of God. His sins are forgiven, covered by the atoning work of the Lamb of God upon the cross. All his sins are imputed to Christ, and their terrible, their terrible debt, demanding death, is paid in full. The, the second shining one stripped Christian of his hope, of any hope, of trusting his own works or righteousness, which are his filthy rags in the sight of God. Isaiah 64, 6. Rather, Christian is clothed with a change of raiment, raiment, the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is uh, so that he's now pure, spotless, and accepted in the sight of God. Uh, Bunyan draws this imagery from the prophet, prophet Zechariah. And of course, you know the whole story again, where you have the, 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 the high priest who's in this filthy garment, and they remove that and give him a, a, a clean garment, which represents the righteousness of Jesus. And then finally on page 20, the very last page, the third shining one sets a mark on Christian's forehead and gave him a scroll with a seal. The scroll is his assurance of life and acceptance at the, the desired haven, and the scroll is going to play a prominent role in the story as we go along. And then, of course, there's the seal. The seal represents the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit of God, Ephesians 1.13, which last week we heard from the sermon about the God's seal okay, upon God's people, right? Uh, and uh, again, that's a, something that's spiritual. It's not a literal. And then Christian, and then so from that, uh, and I'm just summarizing this here too, is that so he receives these gifts. You will see them uh, again. He's a, he's a, he's been uh, changed. Uh, and this again, the arm, uh, the 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 raiment, the, the scroll, and so on is going to reappear in the story as we go along. And then what he's going to Bunyan's going to do is going to uh, uh, create poetry. All right. You, if you read the Pilgrim's Progress, there's poetry in the book. And it's not great poetry, but I'm going to read it anyway. Okay, so 
in this, in this case here, it says, thus far did I come laden with my sin, nor could anything ease the grief that I was in. Until I came here, what a place is this? This must be the beginning of my bliss. For here the burden fell off my back, and here the chains that bound to me did crack. Blessed cross, blessed sepulchre, blessed rather be the man who there was put to shame for me. Any questions or thought on this? We covered a lot. I kind of moved fairly quickly. Maybe you're mad. Maybe you're sad. Maybe you're happy. It's not a question, but I thought that poem was pretty good. Oh, wow. There's other ones I did not include on there. And, and some of them are like really super long. All right. And um, yeah, his poetry is not seen as a, as a high mark for 17th century writers. Okay. But he's making a theological point there, right? Uh, anything about the interpreter's house that you thought like, yeah, this is really speaks to me, really applies to me. This scares the heebie-jeebies out of me. Nothing really. Wow. The man in the iron cage freaks me out all the time. Okay, yeah, sir. Speaking of which, going back to the man in the iron cage, mm -hmm. although I don't think you read point G in the album. I probably didn't, know. Which I think is really the whole crux of this whole scene. Okay. Still the man will not repent. He is convinced that he has been denied repentance. Right. He's convinced of that. He will not believe God's word and cling to its promises. Right. I think so often, and I know what, I've been in that situation where you don't feel it. You don't feel like you're worthy. Or you don't feel God will forgive you. Yeah. But then you go right back to the word of God. Yeah. Which has to be the source, not your feelings. Right. Not what you've convinced your mind to be, but the real truth. And that's the difference between this guy who obviously right. is lost. If he never comes back to that, then he will not believe God's word. But word, he's lost. Right. I agree. Yeah. You always hope that later on the story ends differently. At some point, then again, you know, he hears the word or remembers the word or believes the word despite how he feels. But, this, but again, it, it shows you... Um, it shows you again, there's a balance there. Is that um, my concern a lot of times is that we don't talk about apostasy, the possibility of apostasy. We, and we're very, we, uh, we're very careless and casual about, our, um, about the way we live our lives and we, we dabble and flirt with sin. And then, then it affects us spiritually to a point where again you see people who end up in apostasy or they're on their way to apostasy or they're, they're in a place where um, they didn't think it would be, you know. So, yeah, but the, the man in the iron cage is always uh, very sobering to read that. What about the, you yes, sir? never know when that position is as far as somebody is, um, is like, on a horizontal level, like our goal is just to keep preaching the gospel. Yeah. Because we don't know where that comes, where God hardens that heart so much that, and ultimately it's him who, has already chosen who will be saved. Right. But our goal is to present um, a clear, accurate gospel to them. And also in our sanctification, that's really monergistic if you think about yeah. it. It's not synergistic yeah. in some teaching. Yeah. Because ultimately, we are commanded. We have a responsibility. But as we're being obedient to the Lord, as we look at it, it's like Him who's causing us to do it all. Yeah. 
And it just shows us how we're so dependent upon His grace and mercy for every part of our lives. Yeah. Sorry. No, it's fine. That's why I had the point about it's all, all, is, a, all is grace. Right, is that again, is that apart from the grace of God, I can do nothing. And Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Right, again, it's that it depends upon, really upon, again, um, upon Jesus for everything. Right. Yes, sir. The, the apostasy, you know, here, you think, you're thinking about slipping into sin or being drawn away by sin, but also, um, you know, apostasy is, I think, is being drawn away by false. You know, false teaching. Right. That that that, and that indeed is sin. Uh, but it's not perceived as sin. Right. And 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 I think that's something for us to be aware of that we need to be able to identify false teaching and uh, and realize that it is as pernicious as sin. I agree. All right. Good interaction. We'll just continue on worshiping. You're dismissed. <laughs>